The conference keynote, World-Centered Education from Creativity to Sensibility, was presented by Gerd Biesta. Biesta is currently Professor of Public Education in the Center for Public Education and Pedagogy, Maynooth University, Ireland, and Professor of Educational Theory and Pedagogy at the University of Edinburgh, UK. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for the invitation. It's a real honor to be here. I'll just get started um, because I I prepared something that I'd like to share with you to see if that um, connects, and we have time to to talk about that as well. World-Centered Education, that's the the title of the book, and that's partly the point I'm trying to make. Um, I'll play a bit with creativity and sensitivity, and over time you'll see sort of my likes and my dislikes in in language and uh, ideas. And what is sort of at the heart of it is uh, something that I think is important about art and about education, and and that's sort of the line in it. Um, So, yeah, the invitation to contribute to a a wonderful day, and I can only be here the morning. Uh, Sorry about that. of course, we, we live in, in difficult times, you can say, in unfamiliar times. Um, but time goes on, so there is always the challenge to keep going in some way. And, and this future, I actually liked what you said, Niels, about the, the, you, you make decisions in, in the service of, of what is, is to come out of that. And that's an interesting way to think about the future. Um, I keep reminding myself that I still live in a part of the world that's very privileged and there are other parts where this whole challenge of even getting to the day is is a much bigger challenge. Um, I think what I'll I'll try to do in my presentation is to, to ask whether we can keep both the work of education and the work of the arts, and also where the two intersect, to keep that connected to, I think, the, the, the challenges we face as human beings. And one phrase I particularly like from Hannah Arendt is the challenge of trying to be at home in the world. Uh, and maybe that's less about the future and more about uh, here and now. And I'll come back to that phrase at the very end of my presentation. Um, if you want to characterize what I'm trying to do, you could call it an existential perspective, and I'll, I'll say a bit more about that as well, um, which is also the main tone in, in the book Pernille just showed, and I'm also really honored that that just came out in a Danish translation. And the Danish book look, looks so much better than the English version, so I'm grateful for Danish design. <laughs> Um, So, I'll share some concerns, and out of those concerns, I'll present a number of ideas. And I do that in response to things that I see happening in in policy and practice. And again, I, I, I work in a number of different countries, so I see differences, but also trends and similarities. Um, And I... I try to stay calm, but sometimes I see things that really upset me, like a proposal for a new 
curriculum framework for arts education in the Netherlands that says, what are the arts about? It's about thinking strategies and making strategies. And I just don't get that. I think that would be a, a, a nice couple of notions for design and technology education, but for me it misses something fundamentally about the arts. Um, so, yeah, as, as I say, I, I come across a lot that sort of worries me. Um, I, I read a lot and I often think, but is this really getting to the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter of arts and the heart of the matter of education. And the heart of the matter of... A, yeah, there we are again. <laughs> um, so I, I wrote a little book about it called Letting Art Teach, and that will be another line that I'll work towards. Uh, and that book has also been translated into Danish. The translator, Larke, is sitting there, and it's, it's almost going to be uh, published. So there are, are, are two main concerns I want to put on the table, and you'll, you'll probably recognize a bit of that, and yeah, you, you have to make up your own mind whether you share my concerns there or not. Um, one concern, to put it a bit bluntly, um, is that I worry about the position of the arts in, in art education. Uh, and that has to do with the fact that many justifications for the arts in education are instrumental justifications that say we need the arts because they do something. And in the because you see all kinds of things, people say the, the arts are good because they drive up test scores in language and mathematics and science, or the arts are important because they promote all kinds of things like creativity, the word has already been mentioned, morality, pro-social attitudes. Uh, some people go straight to the brain, uh, empathy, 21st century skills, well-being, and so on. And you can say this is fantastic that so many people say the arts are important. But for me, it, there is a danger here because the arts are very quickly positioned as an instrument that needs to be there to do something else. And I always worry that if there are clever people who find an, another way to develop the brain or creativity or well-being, then the arts will disappear again. Because the arts are, of course, difficult and slow and complicated and expensive. So there are always the, the policymakers and the researchers who say, maybe we can go around the arts and go straight to what we want. So, where on the one hand you can say, uh, a lot of arguments for saying we need the arts in education, I, I always worry whether that's really an interest in the arts. Um, you can also say it shows the, the hierarchies, the hierarchies in society and the, the hierarchies in thinking about education. And a colleague posted a nice uh, tweet a couple of years ago when there was, a, again, this research that says if you play music, you become a better mathematician. And he simply asked, so where's the research that says, if you do mathematics, you become a better musician? That question is actually absent, and it, it shows the problem, you can say, with this connection between the arts and education. So, what can we then say if, if we shouldn't simply say we need the arts because the arts are useful for, for other things? Um, then you can say, we, we've been there, 
the non-instrumental justification, art for art's sake. And if we take pride in that, we could actually say, yes, we stand for the arts and the arts are fundamentally useless. That could be a good position to start with, to challenge this whole idea that art always needs to be useful for something outside of it. But philosophers here um, have a phrase, category mistake, where they say actually to think about the use of, of arts and even the, the use of education is simply the wrong way to think about education. Because as soon as you ask what's the usefulness of something, you begin to think that education is some kind of production process. And there is an awful lot of production language, I think, in contemporary education. Uh, a lot of talk about achievement that should be measured. Learning outcomes, for me, is a, is a horrible term. Um, the focus on test results, all the measuring, so what, what is education producing? And you can say, what we forget there is that someone who's educated is not a a product that falls sort of at the end of a conveyor belt. But to be educated means to be in the world, you can say, with an altered outlook. You stand differently in the world as a result of education. And that's not a language of production and outcomes, but you can say it's a language of how you exist and try to be in the world. So rather than to ask what education makes, you can say we should constantly be asking what does education make possible? What does it make possible for our students? And then I would say the work of educators is to create possibilities where our students can step into. That for me is, is a better way to talk about what I think I've been doing in my career as a teacher. I create existential possibilities for my students, and some of those possibilities are wonderful, others are difficult, but to step into that, you can say that's the, the challenge of, of education. And to create, orchestrate, arrange, we have interesting artistic words for that, those possibilities is the work of the educator where we offer our students different ways of being, different ways of existing, ways of existing differently. Um, and for me, that also means that we shouldn't think of all those possibilities that we offer our students just in terms of learning. Uh, one of the first books I, I wrote, which is also translated in, in Danish, is actually called Beyond Learning, because I think the obsession with learning itself is, is part of the problem in really understanding what, what education is. So that is my, my first concern, that I see the, the arts slipping away from education. But I also worry that education slips away from art education. That's my second concern. It has something to do um, with what I have already mentioned, that in, in many dimensions of education, maybe more the, the school education, but I also see it in a lot of higher education, 
professional education, you see an enormous pressure to think of education as here's a curriculum and students need to get the curriculum and then they need to have evidence that they have mastered the curriculum. And there are colleagues who say this is turning schools just into exam factories. I think that's a, a nice phrase. With a big focus on learning outcomes and making sure that schools actually uh, produce those learning outcomes and they are, are very narrow. And again, when you look at, at school education internationally, you can also see a whole industry that constantly tries to measure that and then begins to compare which country is the best country. Which I think is a, is a bizarre idea to think that you can say that, but it's, it's attractive because a lot of people believe in it and spend money on it. One quick way to, to say what the problem there is, is that these kind of tendencies that only look at the curriculum and the outcomes, they forget that in the middle of that there are human beings. There are children, young people, um, who have the challenge of living their life as, as, as subjects, but increasingly in the education system they are turned into objects, objects that we measure in order to see how they perform and achieve. Um, and here again you see the, the arts moving into the educational conversation, into education policy, into education practice by saying we need the arts to rebalance this. Uh, the arts because they provide opportunities, existential possibilities you could say, for children or students to express their voice, make their own sense, be creative, generate their own meaning, articulate their own unique identity. Um, and I think it's correct that the, the arts can do a lot there and that you see kind of a, a rebalancing. But here comes my, my educational question, and probably that is sort of the, the, the turning point for what I want to explore and put on the table. And the question is, what if? And it's, it's a really helpful, simple question to ask, particularly in all this excitement when we say, well, we need to create opportunities that students can be creative and express and find their own identity, develop all their talents, all that. I call it educational expressivism because what it does is to say education should be a place where, where students can express themselves. The what-if question is this one. What if the voice that is emerging there is a racist voice? What if the creativity that's coming out is destructive? What if the identity is only interested in itself? And there, I think, we go to the, the heart of, of education, and I'm, of course, talking about this as, as an educator, where, of course, the job of education is not to suppress expression, it's not to say to our students, keep quiet and listen, but it's also not to say, here, anything can happen and you just do what you like and that is fine, because 
everything we express, all the ways in which we try to be in the world, have consequences for ourselves and for the world. And I think the real work of, of education is to bring what, what students want to bring to the world into dialogue with the world. And that is the point, I think, where, where education happens. And when you bring that in dialogue, then you can say you start an, an exploration of trying to figure out of all of that that is arriving will help children and young people with the challenge of, of trying to be at home in the world or whether it will hinder. That's not a judgment we can make as educators, but I think as educators our task is to, to raise that question. One phrase I, I use for that, because I'm always looking for, for language, is to say maybe our work as educators is to try to arouse a desire in our students, not just to express themselves, but to, to want to exist in the world in a grown-up way. And I, I'm going to say a few things about this existing in the world and this idea of grown-upness. But for me, this means that both education that is curriculum-centered and education that is child- or student-centered actually misses the real educational challenge, namely that we live our lives in the world. And, and this is this, this idea of world-centered education, to say, actually, yes, we need the curriculum, yes, we, we need the new generation, but the point of education is to bring curriculum and children and young people together in order to, to make this step into the world. That means that I think educational questions are fundamentally existential questions. They are the questions about how we try to exist. Um, so they are not questions about who we are or how we become who we are. There is a word for that, and that word is identity. And I think when you Google it, you will see that identity has become a really uh, prominent word. And there are good reasons for that, because more and more we realize that in the, the, the social and societal configurations we, we have created, there is no place for many identities. So that explains why identity has become the focus of attention. But for me, we cannot stop with the question of identity because there is a, a second question, and you can say that's the question how we are, how we try to live our lives, how we try to exist. You can say it's the question what each of us will do with our identity, with how we have become. And of course, we are all becoming in different ways. It's not about what we learn, but it's about what we will do with what we have learned. With all our capacities and competencies and all the policymakers that build these big European competence frameworks, again, which are I'm not really getting very excited about when I see that. But when you ask the question, what will I do? We also know 
that we always lack knowledge. We are always having also blind spots, incompetencies. Uh, and when the question comes to us, what, what will you do? We cannot say, well, come back in two years because I, I first need to learn a bit more. Sometimes these questions are really urgent and we have to deal with that in this odd mix of ability and inability. I think we need a different word from that, for that. Uh, and in my own work, I use this word subject or, or subjectness, which is a bit odd, but it is this whole point of trying to exist as subject of your own life rather than as object of all these forces that, that try to take over from us. So what then does it mean to exist in the world? How can we give a bit more language to that? One thing I'd like to, to emphasize is that we meet the world when the world offers resistance. We may have wonderful ideas, we may have beautiful intentions, but when we try to, to realize them, we at some point will meet the reality of the world, uh, and we meet that in the fact that the world in some way resists. Uh, that experience of resistance is a really important experience because it shows us that the world is real and not a construction. So again, in education, a lot of people are excited about constructivism and everything can be constructed. And I think that that's a dangerous idea because we meet realities that, that limit what we do and we have to figure out where we stand in relation to that. So to meet a, a future possible composition is a way to encounter reality and figure out what you do in relation to that. Now, to, to experience resistance is a, is a frustrating experience because you want something and the world says no, or not on this way, or not now, or not so fast. And when you meet that, that moment of frustration, you can do a, a couple of things. And this is just to play a bit with ideas and images, but I, I hope it, it, it shows something. So you can say, when you meet resistance, gosh, this is really irritating because I think my, my idea is brilliant and fantastic, and you begin to push because you really want to, to make that arrive in the world. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. In order for things to happen, sometimes we need to push and break through. But there is always the danger that if we push too hard, that we will destroy the very place where we try to arrive. So you can say there is always the, the risk of, of destruction of the very world in which we try to exist. The opposite of that is when you meet resistance, that you say, gosh, this is far too difficult. The, the world is too difficult for me. Um, life is too difficult for me. And you begin to withdraw. And sometimes stepping back is really important so that other things can happen. But if you step back too far, you can maybe see that there is a risk that you, you completely leave the world and, and destroy your possibility to exist in the world. And these are quite heavy terms. 
um, but I, I think they are in a sense also accurate. So to destroy the world in, in which you want to exist or to, to place yourself outside of the world is precisely uh, to, to end up in places of non-being where you don't exist. And therefore you can say, what is the, the challenge we face as human beings? It's to, to try to find sort of a, a middle ground between these two risks. A middle ground between world destruction and self-destruction. And that sounds very odd, but I also think this could be um, a very good way to describe what an educational space or an educational place is, where we try to hold ourselves in the middle ground between the risk that we will destroy the world or the risk that we, in a sense, will destroy ourselves. So it's a kind of place of dialogue, not in terms of talk, but in trying to stay with a, a world that is real and that offers both possibilities and, and limitations. And that challenge doesn't go away. I think if there is a lifelong challenge, it's not lifelong learning, but it's the, the challenge to exist and try to stay in that strange middle ground. That, I think, is what it means to exist in the world. But you can also say that makes that way of existing educational uh, because it, it is a place where you meet a reality that, that tries to tell you something, that teaches you something. Um, I'm aware that all this is abstract. I'm also aware that you come from a range of different artistic disciplines, but hopefully you can make your own connections. I think composition is a very interesting example of this, where you're not in total control of what's happening there. You have to come into a dialogue with what music allows you to do and not allows you to do. The fine arts do that as well. Dance is also to meet the, the reality of your own body, and you may have all kinds of ideas about what you want your body to do, but the real challenge is to, to come into a dialogue with that. So you can say this is all education, but for me, this is also art. Um, and I'm looking for an intersection of, of the, the two that, that goes along these lines where I think, when you ask me what, what is sort of art, I would say it is this, this ongoing dialogue between you and the world, where you meet the reality of the world and figure out what it means to be able to exist there. Now, the other phrase I, I've used, and I'm keeping an eye on the clock, but I think I'll manage, um, is to say, as educators, we try to arouse a, a desire in our students to, to want to exist in the world in, in a grown-up way. And grown-upness is another, um, not entirely sort of smooth English word, and in other languages the, the translation is also always a, a bit difficult, because many words in, in all languages use metaphors of, of growth and development and, and maturation. Um, but what I think we are after here is to say 
grown-upness is a way in which we try to exist. And that again has little to do with age, uh, but it's the, the ongoing challenge we, we face if as human beings we, we try to be in the world. Uh, French educational thinker Philippe Merieux has a very nice sentence where he says, to exist in a grown-up way is to be in the world without being in the center of the world. And you can probably see what goes wrong when people are in the world but think they are in the center of the world. I think that's the, the sad situation of Putin, but it's also the sad situation of Trump. Uh, people actually have no perception that there is a, a world beyond them. And then you can say, if, if this is what we're after, this kind of quality of existing, it has something to do with this question that we, we try to, to make a question for our students to work on, is what I desire, is that what I should be desiring? For my own life, for my life with others, on this planet where we also have a lot of desires and and know for a long time already that the planet is not able to give us everything we desire. And to exist in the grown-up way is to, to live with that question. That's a difficult question because that question always interrupts where we want to go. Uh, it interrupts our desires, it interrupts the interests we may have in ourselves, it interrupts identity, I actually think the educational question interrupts everything. It also interrupts the, the natural order and the social order. So maybe this existential question is, is a very special one. Um, the point of working with this question is never to, to suppress the desires of our students. Um, that, you can say, is, is old pedagogy that I don't know whether I will offend people in the room if, if I say this is old sort of uh, Christian pedagogy that says desires are bad and if you let go of all your desires then you will be in heaven. That's probably true, but we are not in heaven, we are on the earth. So we need our desires to make something happening. But then we need to figure out which desires are going to help and which are going to hinder examining, selecting, rearranging, transforming, so that this existence in the world is possible. Um, that has always been a challenge. I think when you look at the arts, this is a question you can find in yeah, many old stories. How, what do we do with our desires as human beings? In the book, I, I also highlight that we live in an economic system that is not interested in us examining our desires, questioning our desires, but is constantly telling us, desire more so that you buy more. And we know what the problems of, of that are. Um, you can also say this is the problem of, of populist politics, where populist politicians will say, if you vote for me, I give you everything you desire. And again, that is a lie, but it's something that uh, people fall for. And then again, you can say, does this only speak to education? And I think, no. When I see artists doing art, I think they are 
in this ongoing exploration of desires and the world and figuring out what is desirable there. Um, so for me, you can probably begin to see that I, I approach art in an existential way and education in an existential way, and suddenly the two come together in a very different way than either instrumental or anti-instrumental. What kind of qualities are important for that? I want to highlight just three qualities, um, and I highlight them because I think they, they go against sort of mainstream thinking about education. The first is, is interruption. I think we should acknowledge that educational work is interruptive work, precisely because it tries to bring student and world closer to each other. So it interrupts desires, it interrupts being with oneself, it interrupts everything I said. And that is because as educators we, we try to, to focus the attention of our students on the fact that the world is real, that the world is not a fantasy, that it cannot be created in any way we want. So the encounter with what is real, I think, is a really important moment in education. So if curricula are only text and conversation, but if there's never something real to encounter, then maybe that's, that's unhelpful. And that's an interesting way where you can say the arts actually bring something real to the table. Um, this is not a plea to say if there is interruption, we have fantastic education, because interruption can also work in very uneducational ways. So the, the real question for the educator is always to say what kind of interruptions will help to, to raise this question of our existence in, in the world. You can say we're looking for interruptions or existential possibilities that make it possible for students to step forward as a self, as an I, as a, as a subject, and not be objectified. I have examples of that, but maybe I can mention some of that in the, in the conversation. I know there are big concerns about equality in education, and I just want to highlight that actually here we find the, the most equalizing gesture in education, because the, the, the challenge to exist as subject and not object is, in a sense, the same challenge for everyone. These processes take time, and therefore a second quality that I think is really important is that of suspension, of slowing down, of stretching time, you could say. Make time, provide space, create forms where this encounter with the world, which is always also an encounter with yourself, can take place with attention and time to work through that. And again, I'm highlighting this because the sort of the, the main climate in, in a lot of education is to say, go fast. The faster you go as a student, the better student you are. And I worry about that because students that go really fast may not notice anything around them. They may not have any attention to the world. 
there are in the history of education educators who really get this, who really know that students need the time to actually meet the point where they suddenly realize, okay, here's a world, here am I, and there is something to do. So I just want to pay homage to Jonas Korczak and A.S. Neil, who I think give brilliant examples of how you stretch educational time. What I also like is that the, the Greek word uh, skola, um, where we have our word school, actually means free time. Uh, not leisure time, we have, a, I think, a very thin notion of what free time is. But you can say the time we set free for the new generation precisely to, to try to meet the world and meet themselves in relation to that. So in that sense, I think we should take pride in the word school and should worry about societies that try to claim the time of the school for all kinds of non-educational purposes. And then, if education has something to do with this serious but difficult encounter between self and world, there is also a task for us as educators to, to support our students. I like the word sustenance because it partly means support, but it also means nourishment, it means food. Uh, to, to give our students what they need in order to, to stay in that difficult middle ground. And that middle ground is often difficult because it, it looks unattractive in the moment, but it may become the better option in the longer term. But of course, we need to try to hold our students there to see what may happen. So three qualities, interruption, suspension, sustenance, that go against this idea of personalized individual learning trajectories where you go fast and, of course, you will be successful in terms of learning outcomes, but you may not have encountered anything in the, the speed of that. Um, and then, very quickly, I'm nearly there, where you can then look back again at the arts and education. Uh, from these three qualities, I would say, this is indeed what good art does. Good art interrupts, it stops you in your tracks. This is what good art does. It stretches time, it slows down, it allows for very different modes of attention. And I also think good art, and I'm aware I'm using the word good, so there is a, a judgment there, good art also sustains, has the capacity actually to, to stay in, in, in the encounter with the world and, and to offer nourishment for that um, as well. And I think, again, you can see that the arts have an, a potential for a very different kind of equality, not an equality of performance or an equality of opportunities, but an equality for everyone to meet the, the challenge of existing in the world. Final little thing, um, because again, talking from the angle of an educator, you could say education is all about understanding, helping our students to make sense. 
finding answers to the question, what does this mean? How can I make sense of it? And you can even say, some people look at art and say, art is a process of, of sense-making, and maybe art education is also to make sense of art. There is a place for that, but again, there is a little problem that sometimes art doesn't make sense, and for a lot of people, a lot of art doesn't make sense. But even more so, sometimes life doesn't make sense. And still we have to carry on. And here I come back to Hannah Arendt, who somewhere in an essay uses the word understanding and gives this definition. Understanding as an unending activity by which in constant change and variation we come to terms with and reconcile ourselves to reality, that is, try to be at home in the world. And I find it quite fascinating to redefine understanding, not as a cognitive act or as a, an act of sense-making, but as an existential challenge to say, even if it doesn't make sense, there is the ongoing challenge to, to try to be at home in the world. And that goes on, unending in constant change and variation. To reconcile ourselves to reality, not to, to just accept reality as it is, but to say that's where we are and that's where the, the work needs to be done. And therefore, again I would say, in a lot of education it's all about how students can learn and make sense and find their own meaning. That's fine, but I think there is another question that's not the question we ask about what is outside of us, but it's the question that the, the world asks of us. And then we are faced with what is this situation asking of me? What is this situation trying to say to me? What is this thing or this sound or this movement trying to teach me? And there you can say the educational question is sort of turned around and has something to do with the existential possibilities that, that try to make us sensitive to the questions that come to us rather than all the questions we may have. That's what I wanted to share with you and I, I hope that there are some interesting connections and we have some time to talk about this. Um, so I try to, to think differently about art and education and their uh, relationship, uh, partly because I don't want to reduce art to some kind of instrument that has to do all kind of other work, but forgets the work of art itself. So you can say it's, it's an existential argument for the arts. It's also a way to think differently that doesn't reduce education to learning, but actually puts this question, what's the world asking of me at the center of education? And in my own teaching, I find this a far more productive question than everything about learning outcomes and all the templates that, in a sense, trivialize a lot of things. I've also tried to, to push back against the idea that the arts are the domain of expression and creativity. 
because I think actually in the arts we, we meet the world, we meet ourselves and we meet this question of our existence. Um, and I think stepping into the arts uh, is precisely, you can say, the, the point where art itself can teach. And that's the idea I develop in this little book to say um, we, we should make sure that, that art itself can teach and that we do not sort of transform that into very different discourses that have nothing to do with arts and nothing to do with education. That's it. Let's see what we do with this. Thanks for your time. Do you prefer to stand or sit? Or we'll take the chairs. We can sit and see what yeah. that does with Let's us. Let's yeah. maybe take the, the the little chairs and put them out here in front. You do that, so we can talk to people. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Is that all right? Yeah. We do some active sitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So. So what? So yeah, that's just <laughs> so many questions. But uh, I think maybe I should just give you the word. If you have any questions now, before I, you know, I have a million questions that I like to ask. But I think there's probably a lot of things brewing in your heads now, as well. Uh, after Gerd's presentation, so we just take like 30 seconds to think about if we have any questions that we want to formulate, and then I just give the microphone to you, and I will moderate the questions. Hello, oh, we my have name Jakob is Jakob Teilgaard, and thank you so much for the presentation. Um, I, I got a bit curious when you uh, pointed out what if the voice is racist, you had three points there, can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Because I found that quite interesting. Thank you. Um, so what I'm responding to there is, um, yeah, tendencies in education that um, partly start from this critique of education as this big production machine that should be measured and, and controlled. Um, and then people say there is no place for the student as a human being in that. Um, and let's bring in the, the arts to allow students to, to express and be creative. Um, I also see quite a lot of schools that say if you bring your child to our school, we will make sure that they can develop all their talents and they will flourish and, and all that. Um, and what what is missing in in all those ideas is, um, yeah, you could say the question of the criterion. Uh, I, I have, yeah, I, the, the blunt way to do it is to say, to become a good criminal, you also need to develop your talents. So if we just say, in this school, we will develop all the talents of your child, you're saying something that's quite dangerous, but I think it's also a lie because good teachers, they, they look at their students and they see things emerging 
And if they see something emerging that worries them, they, they try to, to do something there. Um, and that for me is the what-if question, that if we just say education is a space where everyone can develop and emerge and, and say what they want to say in any way possible, um, then we forget that everything we say has consequences. Everything we say arrives in a, in a world, in a, in a community or in a, on, on a planet. And that's what I try to say there, to, to say all these yeah, op optimistic or I would say naive or child-friendly ideas, um, they walk around the real educational question, which is, of course, that children bring newness into the world. But the real question is, can we work together to figure out what of that newness is, is going to help and what of that newness is, is going to hinder? And there are no pre-given answers to that. So it's not that we can stand there as educators and say, we already know and we will select what we like and what we don't like. That's bad education. But to say, okay, let's see what is emerging and let's try to find forms where students can bring that in relation to the world and begin to encounter limits. The more you can say the, the encounter with the world can do that, the better it is. So if we as teachers constantly stand there in a nervous way and say, oh, maybe this shouldn't happen, that's, that very quickly becomes unhealthy. Um, but yeah, for, for schools, I, I often make the example of, of gardening, for example, where I think what's brilliant about plants is that in meeting a plant, you meet something, or you can say you can think as hard and as long as you want about a plant, but that won't change how the plant will grow. So the plant asks something very different from you. It, it faces a reality that puts an appeal on you. And that's a much better way to begin to figure out which of your desires and talents are going to help with, with existing in the world than if you constantly stand there as educator. Thank you. And I tend to think that a lot of, of the arts do something similar. So to step into dance or to step into a, a text or to, to step into music or to step into clay or paint is precisely that, that encounter that begins to raise questions for what you desire and what is, is possible there. Yes, mm -hmm. I have the microphone now. My name is Priscilla. Um, I have a background in dance also. Thank you very much. So inspiring. I, I have a question regards to um, future scenarios, the digital, everything that's happening digitally, um, the future possibilities. How are the educations I mean, how do we guard that line? What, what, are the eth what are your thoughts on that regarding the ethics? Because there are a lot of possibilities which are happening really fast, the Web3, the Metaverse. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Can we transfer it? What is there an urgent call in order to react yeah. now? Um, it, it's a big question because these things go fast. Um, and a lot of this technology um, 
is quite attractive, or you can also say it's quite seductive. And, and by using that word, for me, the, the educational challenge comes into view, which is also an existential and a political one. Um, to what extent you can say these technologies um, help us to become sensitive about what it means to exist, or whether they do the opposite. I wrote a little piece, not just about the aesthetics of education, but about the anesthetics of education. And I think that a lot of education is actually working in an anesthetic way by sort of suppressing sensitivity for these questions. So that's, that for me would be sort of one way to approach all these developments. Um, I also think that an awful lot of, of digital technology um, works in the domain of desires. Um, and it comes with the idea that you can say we should multiply our desires rather than to ask difficult questions about our desires. So that's another part of the, the seduction there. Um, we should not forget that most of social media are uh, platforms for selling stuff. So Facebook and TikTok are economic models. Um, and so when you analyze it from that way, you also see that what it constantly tries to do is to, to work on our desires rather than on our existence as subject. Um, and the last worry, so yeah, I've thought a little about this. Uh, um, another problem with, with a lot of digital technology is that it, it doesn't offer resistance in the way in which non-digital does. That's why I personally, I don't like digital or 3D printers, for example, because with a 3D, 3D printer, any idea you have, you can make. And it doesn't give you sort of any restrictions other than the frustration that sometimes the software doesn't work or the, the printer gets clogged up. But that's very different from having a piece of clay where you encounter the integrity of the clay. And, and a lot of digital technology doesn't have that integrity. And therefore, it's, it doesn't allow you to meet the world, but it actually pulls you outside of the world. So I, I think those, there are quite a lot of worries there. But because it looks so smooth and attractive, it, it yeah, makes it more difficult to keep standing in relation to that. Thank you. Hi there, my name is Jakob Hull. Uh, first of all, I'm amazed by the uh, ground you covered in such a short time. <laughs> I, I haven't heard a talk in a long time that's been so comprehensive. Um, and that also means that you went over some things, of course, a bit quick. Uh, I was interested in your notion of equality. Uh, as I understood it, you phrased it as a question of opening up a space for students uh, to step up in. And in that sense, it, it was the ultimate equality or, or something like that you described it as. So I'm just wondering, 
and in a sense that's a very liberating thought because a lot of the equality in most discussions is couched as a question of backgrounds, as a question of differences, whereas here you create a, a, a solid common ground. But could you reflect a bit on, on that uh, dilemma, backgrounds as to possibilities? Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a, a big and complicated theme, so I was aware that, that I, I went fast <laughs> there. Um, but when you begin to look at, at education and the arts sort of in an existential way, um, then you can already begin to see that the, the possibility for each human being to exist as subject of their own life is in an odd sense the, the same for each individual. So you cannot say your existence as subject is, is a bit more or a bit better than your existence. So we, we all face the same challenge and we all have to figure that out for ourselves. And I think that's a very different way to bring the question of equality into education by saying we all meet the, the same Call, which doesn't mean that we all have to give the same answer, but we all have to figure out what we will do with, with our human freedom in, in the world. Um, and that's very different from the talk about, say, equality of opportunities, which I think on its horizon always is interested in performance, so how do you achieve, given that you get equality of opportunities? And I've written a piece, so if you want to, to read it, because that takes a bit more. I think equality of opportunities in some way always hopes that there will not be an equality of outcomes. Because when you begin to think in that way, society cannot cope with everyone being as successful as everyone else. So there are, I think, difficulties there with a lot of well-intended uh, yeah, discourse and practice about equality and equality of opportunities. And to, to take the question of equality and, and put it somewhere else, not in how do you perform on a curriculum or how do you perform on an exam, but you can almost say, how do you perform on the, 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 the challenge to exist as a subject in a wider world? Um, I think helps to, to, to think differently about that. That doesn't mean that we, we should forget that people have very different resources and, and time and possibilities to do that. But you can say the, the challenge is the same for everyone. And, and to say that is the fundamental educational challenge puts equality in a very different sort of corner than where I think it's, it's happening a lot. I'm also aware I, I did something very quickly about identity because <laughs> the whole question of equality is also linked to identity. Uh, my point as an educator would be to say, um, yes, we should understand what all the issues with identity are, but identity can never be the last step. There is always the existential question, and what will you do with your identity? 
And if we stop before that and say, no, students just need to find out who they are, who they want to be, and that's it, then I think we're, we are missing the, the existential part of that and the educational part of it. <laughs> you thought you had an opportunity and it's gone again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hello, my name is Ulla. I come from a national children's project called Play Art. And uh, I would like very much to... Uh, I, I love your question about what is this asking of me and uh, how does uh, the, the German Bildung, the Danish Danelse, uh, how does that fit into uh, this question? I would very much like you to hear talk about that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, I have to smile a little because just over coffee we had a conversation about that. <laughs> I've, I've been in, in Denmark many times um, and I, I often come to this point <laughs> where, where someone says, yeah, but in Denmark we... We have this, and it's called Danelsen. Uh, and then I ask, what is that? Is that Bildung? Do I understand it? And then they say, yeah, it's, it's Bildung, but not entirely. So it's a Danish version of it. And, and then it almost becomes like sort of a Danish secret. that only, uh, uh, And I'm, I'm saying that because, I, yeah, I find it interesting that Danelsen has, has, is, is doing something. And, but I, I always wonder whether in, in that framework the what-if question is sufficiently prominent. Uh, because I know traditions of, of Bildung and Danelse that say what we do as educators is we bring cultural resources to our students so that they can grow and develop and, and become extended and, and discover the world. Um, but there is always this, yeah, the, the, the what-if question, which is a, an existential but also a, a political question. And I have to be careful here because, in a sense, I think this is a Danish secret. But when, when I talk to colleagues in Germany about <laughs> Bildung, many of them are highly critical of Bildung because they say, if there is one country that had the highest Bildung in the world, it's also the country that missed precisely the existential question. So you had people who were very gebildet and they functioned perfectly in, in a Nazi regime. And that is, I've found that remarkable to hear people from, from Germany say that's the big problem with building and therefore we're quite reluctant. Because in other countries, I also saw people saying, but shouldn't we get more building in the schools? And I probably, I want to leave this question in Denmark and say, <laughs> is, 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 is there a, maybe a, a question or a problem there? Um, and... Um, do we need something else, or can we reconfigure Donaldson? I'm not sure about that. I think what I what I try to do in some of my own work is to to go for the sort of the, the third way uh, with with world-centered education to always say now there is something 
there is a, a really difficult question that knocks on our door and we need to do something there. Um, so yes, I, I see that a lot of ideas and practices that come out of Bildung really broaden education and go against the, the, the narrowing and the measuring. Uh, but I think this morning I gave, gave a little list of urgent questions that I think we, we shouldn't forget there. So that's probably the best way I can respond to it. Mm. I think we, all, we had Christopher also here. In, oh, okay, you got it. Sorry. I think we have like five more minutes. Yeah. Hello, my name is uh, Mikkel. I'm a professor at the Funen Art Academy and uh, I would like to know a little bit about the status of the artwork because I believe you more or less exclusively talked about art education as something that's got to do with process. And uh, I believe that most artists, their being in the world is maybe not centered but at least uh, summed up in an artwork. I mean, there might be an art object, say a sculpture or painting, it might be a, I don't know, symphony or a book or whatever. And, and I would like to hear your thoughts on that matter, the matter of the art work. Um, I'll, re I'll respond in a way and then you need to, to see whether I'm getting to the, to the point. Um, because Although I use this word subjectness, I'm, I'm not saying that all this is subjective. I think that the, we, we encounter the, the challenge of what it means to exist as subject of our own life when we meet something objective, when we meet a world that is not how we want it to be, but that is how it is. Um, For me, that's also a way to think about the artwork or artworks, that they are objective um, and that in artistic processes, we, we step in that encounter. That's where I don't particularly like the, the notion of creativity because it suggests that it, it all comes from the artists uh, and again, Yeah, coming back to what you said, because for me that really got to the, the, the point where you say, as a, as a composer, you are in, in dialogue with the future composition, which is objective in itself. Um, and sometimes you, you are happy with how you emerge out of that dialogue together and sometimes also not, but that's also the objectivity of the artwork. That's, that's how I would respond, but I don't know if there's another dimension to your question. So, but I would say, yeah, the, the objectivity of, of art is really important. So we shouldn't think that art is just something an individual creates and is in total control of that creation. That's the problem with the 3D printer, that it suggests that, you can be, that your ideas can be materialized, but then they are materialized outside of the world. They remain subjective, you could say. Yeah, okay. Thank you for a highly uh, engaging talk also. 
And um, I would like to go back quickly to the question of the digital materiality and the resistance, because I believe rather that the problem is with the digital that art educations have largely failed to address the digital as a material. So anyone who has worked with programming or physical computing know how much resistance there is in the digital. So I think we should perhaps rather look at you know, how can we, in the spirit also of your talk, work towards uh, challenging how we exist digitally, digitally in the world on a material level also in the arts education. Right. Um, and then that brings me to just an, another slightly critical point about uh, the about worlds and world building. So for me, and I think for many people in the arts, art is a domain where you kind of challenge taken for granted ways of being in the world, elsewhere in society. So I'm thinking, you know, rather than this dialogical concept, do you also see potentials for other ways of how art engages the world, for example, by actually, yeah, constructing new possible worlds? Thank you. Um, I agree with your first point. I think that's a, that's a good observation um, to to actually figure out what's the the reality we encounter in what we can call the the digital. And um, it, your second point, I, I also agree, and that's that's a bit the difficulty of finding the right language. But I would say art is precisely not to accept the world as it is. And if dialogue says we, there is nothing to change there, then dialogue is not the, the right word. Um, because I, I think that a lot of art constantly sort of goes into the world and shakes it around and, and looks for different configurations of that in order to say is... Is that another existential possibility we, we should be having as human beings? And, and there you can say, yeah, uh, there's, there are so many words I don't like. So you can say it's transformative, but in a sense that that can also become a superficial word. But I think precisely that what I see good are doing is to, <laughs> to take the world and, and shake it around and, and try to figure out different existential possibilities. Um, and for that, you sometimes have to go really far in order to, to encounter something where you say, yeah, this was worthwhile. Uh, and often, more often, maybe you go to the darker places than the, the happier places to do that. So for me, that's definitely part of it. So the world is not simply the thing that, that is and we should only get into dialogue with. On that note, thank you so much. Well, thank and you. thank you yeah. for your questions and listening. Good.